Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Welcome to episode 162. My guest today is Ryan Donnelly, founder of Enzai. Enzai has an AI governance platform that helps organizations manage AI risk through policy and organizational controls, allowing users to engender trust in and scale their AI systems. Before founding Enzai, Ryan worked as a corporate lawyer in London at some of the world's leading law firms. Ryan was recently invited to 10 Downing Street. That's the home of the Prime Minister, for those of you not familiar with British government, in other words, the British equivalent of the White House, to discuss AI and UK policy, along with some other very high-powered luminaries of AI. So we're going to talk about what's going on at that level of the UK government with respect to AI as we get right into the interview. Ryan, welcome to AI and You. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure to be here. And so I want to be picking your brains about what the thinking is at number 10 Downing Street about AI at the moment, since you were right there and helping them with some of that thinking. But let's back up first and find out how you got into this space, because I always find it fascinating the journeys that people have taken to arrive at their current position and role in AI. Uh, not many people started out there. And so in your case, what's your background and how did it evolve into where you are now? Yeah, so I came in it probably from a slightly different angle than most. And there's probably kind of a bit of a computer science type pathway that you can go down to get into this space. But the nature of the space is, has evolved so much that it needs actually a real diverse range of stakeholders with different skill sets coming at it now. And I think you're starting to see more and more of that, you know, people approaching this from all kinds of backgrounds. So my background is in law. Before I founded this company, I was a lawyer at some of the best law firms in the world out of London. So I worked kind of in private practice law. I did a lot of corporate law, commercial law, a lot of technology regulation law, to be honest, a lot of like GDPR and data protection type stuff. And the kind of fire in my AI journey was really lit whenever I saw that first paper that the European Union published around regulating AI, the real just initial white paper where they were thinking, hey, is this even something we should be regulating? We can see it's a little bit risky. And I was, I was just super excited by the potential of technology and the direction of travel there where regulation can kind of step in here and make these incredible technologies really powerful and widespread. So I thought I would, from that moment in, I was hooked and the rest kind of history. I think that's really interesting that your path into this was what the EU was doing with their AI Act, which just got signed I believe. And actually, a few episodes ago, we had Risto Uk on the show, who is a policy researcher at Future of Life Institute and helping us understand all about that and talk about volatile legislation. What was it about the European Union's AI Act that particularly caught your imagination? I suppose, to be honest, it was, it was not so much the act itself, but it was more the trends that were underpinning that, right? And it was really just, I was always kind of tech savvy, kind of kid at school. I was always the one pulling computers apart and putting them back together to figure out how they work and coding up little websites and all that kind of stuff. So I did have a bit of a decent grinding in the technical aspects of this. 
And I knew the potential of technology. I just knew that if done properly, it will completely change the world. It's like a technological revolution on the level of the invention of the internet or the invention of the microprocessor even. It's that big a leap forward, to be honest. And I saw that, but I just knew at the same time, without like sensible guardrails in place around the world to ensure that this technology can be trusted, it will never actually fulfill that true potential. I think you've seen other breakthroughs that have been, I won't name names, but like certain ones where maybe they, there's some great technology behind them, but they've been kind of commandeered by other things and maybe haven't reached their true potential yet. So I was very interested in making sure that this one can run because I can see it being so beneficial to so many people across the world. Right. You know, I've often thought that there's this kind of semantic intersection between technology, computer technology, and law in that many bodies of law are referred to as the such and such code. And there's this kind of fantasy, at least at the back of my mind, that you ought to be able to program something with that and have it come up with the answer. In your mind, was there ever that sort of equation? Oh, that was one of my earlier sort of ideas. Yeah, I can see so many parallels because like, and think about a contract as well, like in a contract, you define a heap of variables at the start. You're like, this defined term means this, and then you use those variables throughout. And then you can set up like little functions. They're like functions done very semantically in words, but they're still functions that you use again and again, like cross-referring to different clauses and this kind of thing. So the parallels are, are pretty remarkable. One of the key differences and the reason why I probably didn't start my initial company in this, although I think this can be overcome with AI, was that I was looking at smart contracts and things like that, but they're quite declarative. You know, it's like they're very binary. It's a one and a zero. Whereas in the law, like so much of it is actually a little bit of a gray area and open to interpretation, you know, and that's actually like the grease that like smooths the wheels and makes it all function because people can read into things in different ways. And it's what keeps the lawyers in a job. So yeah, I think there's a ton of parallels basically between the two. And I think legal training is very good preparation for this kind of world, to be honest. Oh, well, thank you for being, I think, the first person to draw that close a parallel between law and technology on this show. It reminds me of a story about a computer science professional who will go unnamed, but was acquiring U.S. citizenship and mentioned to his friends that in preparation for the citizenship exam, he discovered some bugs in the Constitution, and should he point those out during the interview? And they advised him not to, that wouldn't get any points for doing that. <laughs> and there are lots of bugs in the code. In fact, I think there are plenty of lawyers who are not in any hurry to fix them because they get paid for debugging or maintenance, as it were. So let's move on to the company that you started to work in this space of the intersection of policy and AI. Tell us about that. Yeah, so our company is it's a software company and we build a platform that helps organizations understand and manage the risk that comes with AI while meeting their emerging regulatory obligations. So it's kind of, it's a classic Silicon Valley type story, isn't it, where technology moves incredibly fast at the start. Everyone jumps on it. They don't worry too much about the rules. They don't worry too much about the consequences. It's just a case of push this as far as it can possibly go and let's see what happens. And I think that was very in vogue, sort of like 10, 15 years ago, but we saw the consequences of it with social media and people. And we started to see some of the consequences of it with AI. And I think people are now very much more aware of the deficiencies of that kind of approach. And certainly organizations are aware of the damage that that kind of approach can do to them and their products and the end users. So I get the sense that there's much more of a demand now at the moment for 
sensible risk management techniques and sensible mitigants that you can put in place to make sure that some of the potential dangers don't materialize. And for us, one of the best ways to do that is just through governance, like raw governance. So that means taking principles about how you build and deploy AI, right, and turning those into policies and letting those policies define how you assess each individual system that you build by deploy in your organization to make sure that you've identified any potential risks and that you can manage those risks once you know about them. So I think that's the key to this. One of the classic lines, I, I, it's a bit cheesy, but I, I love using it. But like when this stuff goes wrong, you're never going to put a GPU in jail for it going wrong, right? Like you're never going to put the code in jail. It's all about the people, right? It's the people that did it and the people that can be managed. And if the people follow the right processes, they'll identify the risks and then they'll know how to manage those risks in the future. So I think governance and what we do at the heart of it is people and our technology is about enabling people to make the right decisions about what they're doing and what they're deploying. And you're right at the moment that AI cannot be held culpable for anything that it does. People have to be. One of the things I wonder is, could it become difficult? Could it even become impossible, especially if people are intentionally motivated to obscure who is responsible for the actions of an AI? Could it become impossible to determine who to hold responsible? Well, so I guess there's, there's two questions to this, right? There's that AGI point in terms of like, where is this going in the future? And that's not something I preoccupy myself with too much at the moment because I'm more interested in the risks as they are today. And if you look at the value chain today, it's pretty complex. Like everything from, you know, someone can prepare a data set and the person who prepares a data set can be very different from the person who trains the model. The person who trains the model could be very different from the person who designs the interface for that model and then the person who buys that model and deploys it onto the world attributing that value, that the liability across that value chain, you're absolutely right, is hard at the moment. And it's something I think regulators are still struggling with. You're seeing probably one of the most active moving parts of the act in terms of the heavily debated areas. Where that falls still remains to be seen. I think so much of it will depend on the individual context of what the relevant actor in that value chain was doing. And I, to be honest, I don't think we have all the answers on that yet. I'm interested to see how that's going to play out. Thank you. You describe Enzai as, I believe, a risk management platform. Is that, did I get those words from your site correctly? Yeah, so I, I think it was more as an AI governance platform. And one of the things that we do is help organizations manage risk. We also think that by managing risk effectively, you're going to build better systems. It's like an enabler for our customers. Like, you'll build better systems. Your customers will be happier as a result. Mm. Your products will be more widespread. All the benefits that come with that. So we very much help people manage those risks, but we think of governance as being actually a much greater opportunity than just managing risk. It's all actually all about creating better systems. And so many of these words are abstract. I think we can understand about risks and governance as abstract as those are, but the word I'm focused on is platform because that means so many different things in different contexts. And when you insert it here, what does that mean? Because it does suggest a specific thing, framework or something that has some specific structure to it? Yeah, it's a good question. So what it is, is it's a web-based platform. You can log on to the platform and then as you log on, you're brought into the governance environment. And that's where within this governance environment, which is all accessible through the browser, you can log in there. You can understand exactly where you're, you can see at a glance what's going on in your organization across many different models. You can see where your aggregate governance position is at. 
And then you can dive into specific issues and you can start making sure that you're compliant across that life cycle just to manage it all holistically and dive in and make sure that everything that you're working on is working through the right processes, has all the right approvals to make sure that it's going to be a success. So there's technology there that you're saying that organizes those concepts for you, is that right? Yeah, I suppose the way to think of it is this, right? You have principles, you'll set principles within your organization about the kind of AI that you want to build. A lot of that stuff will be like, the system should be fair and the system should be like robust and all these kind of things, right? They're great ideas, but they can be particularly nebulous. So you need to start trying to work out how you translate those down into actual actionable insights that you can use to make sure that you're doing the right thing. So the way you do that is you put policies in place around those and underneath each of those policies to demonstrate compliance to them, you need to have what we call assessment frameworks. So the assessment frameworks just guide you through step by step to show you exactly what you need to do to fulfill the obligations of the policy. And those policies are based back up on the principles. So wrapping all that up, where we can automate part of that process, we do. So there's like an API component to what we do and, and it slots into all of your existing workflows so that the likes of data scientists are wasting loads of time copying and pasting information across to demonstrate compliance against frameworks that that can all be done from their workbook environment or their IDE. And we can just kind of gather a lot of the monitoring kind of information as well whenever the model's been deployed and flag and alert issues once they've been identified. And just a side note here, did you say IDE? Yeah, yeah, yeah. As in interactive development environment? In, interactive development environment, exactly, yeah. Cool, okay. Well, how much has the use of the technology in providing this function, which is in its output something very not that technical, not technological, but is about managing risks, creating policies, the sort of things that could be done and were done long before this sort of technology existed. What has the use of this technology meant to you in terms of the value that you're able to provide or how much better it enables you to do that job? Yeah, so I think that's actually a great point. You've just been there in the sense that like risk management techniques have been around for a very, very long time and used very effectively in lots of other domains. Just because AI is a new, like wonderful, powerful thing doesn't mean that a lot of those tried and tested techniques can't be applied to this industry. Yes, it's at the forefront. Yes, it's cutting edge, all that kind of thing. But we've learned a lot about managing risk in the past and we can apply a lot of those learnings to this new domain. The thing about this new domain is it's quite unique, right? So like it's very different to sort of traditional software development processes in terms of how it's built and how it's designed. The tooling landscape is very different. Stakeholders, as I touched on the start, are probably a little bit different as well because I think you need a really, really broad range actually of stakeholders involved in these kind of systems to make sure that there's a success. So I think that is like a very interesting aspect of this. You can use those old techniques. The thing that I'd say organizations probably struggle with a little bit is how do you take those old techniques? Like people aren't skilled in those. Hey, I, like I'm a data scientist and I know data science. I, don't, I haven't studied, you know, classic risk management techniques in other fields of finance or, or healthcare or any of those things. Like how can I just get the benefit of those? without having to figure out exactly what they are and how they apply. And that's where technology like ours can step in to really give organizations that like zero to one head start where they don't have to go on back and done all that research, but they know exactly from, from taking our technology out of the box how to do it. And is there a AI underlying your platform? And there certainly is. We've certainly got parts that we're using AI, but one of our guiding principles on this is if we don't need to use AI, we won't. So we're doing a lot of experimentation at the moment, as is everyone with some of the generative stuff. I do think there's so much value to be done there. 
but we're also very wary of the risk. So we haven't released any of it yet as part of our core product. We've just done like kind of like feasibility studies with some of our early customers on it. Where we can use AI, there's a massive benefit to it. We will, but we're not going to use the technology for the sake of it either. So a lot of the platform is kind of your more traditional sort of like software SaaS type product. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's needed, to be honest, for a lot of the problems we're trying to solve. So that's established where you were at the time that your journey to 10 Downing Street started. Can you describe the beginnings of that journey? What led to that? Yeah, so we've obviously been tracking like the legislative landscape around the world very, very closely. So of course, we've been looking at Europe, we've been looking at North America and Canada, we've been looking at what's happening in the US as well. And because we're kind of based in the UK, obviously, a lot of what's going on there is on our doorstep. And I think this year I've noticed a real sea change, to be honest here. I know that the team at the Office for AI in the UK have been working extremely hard on this for years, but the government hasn't really been shouting about it for years. But I've noticed in the past, maybe like three months, the government has really understood, I think, the opportunity ahead of the UK in this field. They've identified it now and they are probably playing a little bit of catch up here to try and make sure that they can really capture the opportunity. But I think they're really well placed to do so. So We've been involved in that legislative process, to be honest, from the start. So we've been working closely with the government and the different regulators here, feeding into various consultations and proposals and how that's done. And we've been attending sort of policy seminars and and that kind of thing. And hopefully provided some useful feedback, to be honest, that's really helped shape this legislation. So yeah, I, I was very fortunate to get an email one day inviting me to attend down. They didn't give didn't give you much notice, to be honest. It came through like a Tuesday and it was like, can you be at Downing Street on a Thursday? Fortunately, we're based in Belfast and it's only an hour flight away. So I was able to hop on a plane and be there. And it was a group of what they'd done is they gathered kind of a group of senior AI leaders from kind of across the UK just to get their thoughts on how the legislative landscape is unfolding here in the UK and what more can be done to, to seize the opportunity. What's your sense of where the UK government is with respect to that? In let's take it at, say, emotional level, because I've spoken to lots of legislators and people in their orbit who are saying, we know something big is going on here. We don't know what it is. We're pretty sure no one else does either. We probably ought to do something about it, but we have no idea what. And if we do the wrong thing, it could be really bad. And in other words, they're uncertain. They know there's a lot that they don't know. And so it's characterized by this shock and perhaps paralysis. But I think overwhelmingly, an awareness of there being something really big there and that they are starting out, kind of wound back to uh, square one in a sense that so many other people are. What do you think is going on in their minds of the people who are trying to make these decisions in terms of how this feels to them? So that analysis paralysis that you referred to is definitely a risk. Um, it is like, a, this is a very technical domain and you're speaking with like lots of really, really smart people in it and they can come at you with like lots of these technical requests and concerns and some of them, like it is a very legitimate concern to say, hey, don't overburden us with bureaucracy because we need to move fast to make sure that we're at the forefront of the world. I completely get that point. I think that makes a ton of sense. What I will say about regulation is I also believe when it's done right, it is a complete enabler because people need to trust the technologies that they're interacting with, like full stop. Like people need to trust this stuff. Look at jet planes, right? Like people trust jet planes like never before because they are so safe. They are regulated beyond belief, to be honest. They are crawling with regulation, how you build and deploy the planes, how you take off, how you land, 
how everything in relation to those planes is managed. Um, and that's established a trust that we that means the world is more connected than it's ever been um, in history today. So I can see AI having that kind of potential. Well, I can see regulation getting us there, to be honest, because I don't think it is too much to ask of people building, you know, these risky complex systems to do things like put a quality management system in place around what they're doing, like our tool can provide or keep detailed technical documentation around everything they're doing, try and identify some of the downstream risks and take action to mitigate those. When these technologies are so powerful, that really is not too much to ask. And I think regulators should be asking for that kind of thing to ensure the safety of these technologies going forward. So that's kind of the way I view this all in now in terms of the opportunity ahead of us and kind of the UK's thoughts on that. I think, so Rishi Sunak, obviously the UK Prime Minister, has a very business-heavy background. He's very fascinated by tech. He loves it. Like he was on that 20VC podcast. Harry Stebbings recently talking about tech. He's very passionate about tech and the opportunity that it can present. And I, I, to be honest, I personally really like that because I, I, of course I'm in this sector as well and I love technology. And I love a Prime Minister who's really focused on that. So I think they get the opportunity. I think the government is also very quickly learning where the opportunity lies. I, apart from sort of like Europe kind of came at the regulatory area as like, hey, this is super risky. We need to regulate and control it, which is right. And I agree. But their lens is more like we're doing this to protect our people, which is true. I think the UK has woken up to the a slightly different angle on this while, while still very much buying into that. But a different angle of, hey, this is also an opportunity. It's an opportunity to kind of lead the world in a cutting edge area of technology and law. This is an opportunity to make sure that like UK companies build the safest and most secure and most trustworthy AI and the results from that downstream will be immeasurable. So I think they get this. And I don't think they're suffering from the kind of analysis process that you mentioned there because they're doing a lot about this. Like they've set up the Foundational Models Task Force and the AI Task Force. They have... We've got the Alan Turing Institute. We've got the Center for Data and Ethics and Innovation. You've seen the the hundred million that they announced in terms of making AI technology safer and more secure. They're investing it directly in startups and scale ups to enable that. So I think they've been very smart, to be honest, in identifying very quickly this opportunity here, specifically on the governance piece, and positioning the UK to really take advantage of that. So. The conversation was not just about regulation, but also about incentives and grants. Was there any other scope that was covered in this meeting? Yeah, so I mean, the, to be honest, it was very much uh, like the meeting itself. The government was just all ears, to be honest, like, hey, how can we help? What can we do that can set, can achieve these objectives? Because I think we're all pretty aligned on those objectives of making this place a superpower for artificial intelligence. How can we get there? What can we do? And the room was not short of ideas, to say the very least. Now, we'll see how many of those translate into sort of actionable policies and things that happen downstream. But I very much get the sense that they are willing to move on this and willing to move quite fast. I've been in some kinds of meetings like that where they're information gathering, but it's the part that comes after that is where the sausages are made, right? Which you don't get to see is what do they do with that? The UK has been fortunate to have the all-party parliamentary group on AI operating for about the last five years, gathering enormous amounts of information and collating and organizing useful input on AI from all angles. And I would hope that they're going to tap into that because it's just down the road. Do you have an idea of what the follow-on is? I mean, you've provided all these ideas, but this is at the brainstorming level. At some point when this comes out in terms of 
sending X amount of pounds somewhere or passing certain kinds of laws, how does that part in between happen? I mean, it's already started happening, to be honest. Like the, the bridge AI, the 100 million the government committed to AI funds has already started being deployed. They're, they're already deploying that. They're moving very, very quickly on this. And you've even seen, like they've got, I saw an announcement that they've got the likes of DeepMind to sign up to let them audit their kind of, their big foundational models and things like that. Was it DeepMind? And there was another company also, one of the other big foundational model providers signed up to it as well. So things are happening and happening very quickly. I think one of the things that is also moving is probably access to compute. I know there's a lot going on there in terms of getting more people more access to the compute power that they need to be able to train these massive models. So, I, I mean, I can see, I actually, from like, I've kind of got the grassroots view as a startup myself building in the space, and I can see the efforts being made now to really translate the talk into action. And if, I, I suppose if I was being like, really quite cynical in terms of the political landscape of it. If you think about like what the UK has been through, like we've just been through the Brexit, which, you know, there's a lot of people saying that might not have been the best idea at this stage, but it's a course that the country's committed to. So it's a course that the government are committed to making a success. So if they can demonstrate something like this, where, hey, this is a new area, we've taken a slightly different view from Europe. It's a very tangible demonstrable difference there that the government can definitely hold up as a success. And I think that is probably feeding into maybe some of the thought processes there in terms of here's how we demonstrate why Brexit was a good idea. Because if there hadn't been a Brexit, then the EU's AI Act might be binding on Britain. Yeah, exactly. The regulation would have came straight in the UK. And this has allowed the UK on a new emerging, critically important area to take a divergent approach the first time in a, in a way that it just wasn't able to do as part of the European Union. So I think that is probably feeding into the, what do you think about that? There's a bit of a hot take. What, what do you think? Well, I have my own opinions about Brexit, but that's for another show. I, it might, as one commentary I was seeing recently, be one of the perhaps few ways that Brexiteers get to redeem themselves if they can pull a, something better out of the fire, but that's still up in the air. So the, this push to get more compute capability. I assume that's talking about building data centers in Britain is part of the need for that or all of the need for that so that data can be domiciled in the country and there are no questions about who has access to it, what nationality they are. Because I haven't been that close to any discussions on building data centers here in the UK. Obviously, of course, there are some indigenous UK data center providers. There's, I see it more in terms of like the global sort of discussion on chips and manufacturing those and mm -hmm. where are those built and how do you have the capacity to build the hardware that all of these big AI models are now trained on. I think that's something the government's interested in and making sure that the UK has indigenous capacity in that. But I suppose that's something that every big government is thinking about at the moment, given the kind of macro political conditions. So it's not every day that a hundred million pounds gets freed up to be spent in a, a sector what do you see that accomplishing? It's not. And I think that they are the first government in the world to do this. It, like that's a hundred million pounds for safety and trust of AI systems. I see that honestly as a springboard like that is going to enable small startups here in the UK and scale ups to move way faster than they otherwise would have been. It creates the right sort of landscape where they know the government's behind them and they know that the opportunities are there for them to take. And it gives them the confidence to take risks with what they're doing because you're competing on a massive sort of global stage here in a with lots of 
startups and scale-ups from all over the world. So you need those kind of resources to be able to do that effectively. And other governments are thinking about giving it to their economies to boost their economies in, in similar ways. So I think, I think it's a really smart play. And do you see any movement, yeah, it might be early, but do you predict any movement in attracting talent from overseas? So I, this is another thing that Rishi Sudak loves talking about there. I think he's introduced some new visas recently for the UK in terms of getting people here. I think he's got one that's like a high potential individual visa, whereby if you've graduated from like a top 50 university around the world, you can come to the UK without a job for like two years and figure it out. So you can get a job maybe at like one of the promising com- startups or scale-ups here, or you can find your own company and that kind of thing. So, and then there's, I think he's done streamlining, he's recently announced a new visa, streamlining the ability of like companies to get their employees here to the UK for if they're, there's a scale-up visa or something, I think it's called. So it's, that's another point that they're thinking about. It's, it's talent, right? It's getting the talent mm-hmm. in the right place and making sure that you have the talent there to fulfill on all of those objectives that they've set. And I think there's even stuff going on at grassroots level in terms of in schools and making sure that people are educated and coming out with the skill sets that they need to thrive in this rapidly evolving exponential age. Right, which just hints at how many different sectors need to be addressed by governments to look at what or to do something about artificial intelligence right now. As you mentioned, education is critical going down at least to the high school level. Where do you see AI regulation evolving in the UK in the short term? Good question. So the approach that they've set out is about striking the right balance through regulation and through innovation. So trying to get the best of both worlds, which I think is right. You want to develop an ecosystem that enhances innovation and encourages innovation, but sensible innovation with guardrails up to make sure that that innovation is in the right direction. What they've done, just to give you a quick overview of how the approach actually differs from the one taken by Europe. So Europe, the EU AI Act is very much a horizontal piece of legislation. So it applies across every single industry vertical and it takes a risk-based approach. So it categorizes different applications into different levels of risk. And depending on those levels of risk, the relevant system could be outlawed entirely or subject to kind of more stringent compliance regulations. And that's one way of doing it. The other way is actually looking at the existing regulators you've got within a country and saying, right, okay, well, we already have regulators in the banking sector. We already have regulators in the finance sector, the healthcare, all kinds of different regulators. Why don't we empower them to set standards for how AI is used within their specific domain? The thinking being that these domains are all quite unique and they come with all their own unique considerations. So people who are best placed to administer regulation in these areas are those sort of sectoral regulators. I suppose one of the funny things is like, I mean, the criticism of the EU Act is that it's so broad, it applies across everything, across all these different industry sectors. There's nothing that goes deep on the specific verticals, which the UK is right to recognize, do come with their own considerations. On the flip side, the criticism of the UK system was very much around, hey, you've got these individual regulators, but what if they start taking like different approaches and then that gets really confusing, doesn't it? If mm-hmm. one regulator takes an interpretation on, on one thing and then another regulator takes a diametrically opposite interpretation on the exact same thing, what if there's a gap? What if there's a use case that isn't regulated or there's no regulator for that already? So 
one of the things that they're looking to do now in the, in the UK regulations, maybe have some sort of central coordination function that pulls all of that together and makes sure that everything is working smoothly across all of those different sectors. So I would say if I was to take a wild guess, I, I don't know. The, the consultation on it closed yesterday um, and we obviously fed into that consultation. I can see originally it was set out on an old statutory footing. So it was, hey, these are going to be guidelines. They're not binding. In the latest proposal, they said, actually, what about if we put an obligation on the regulators to abide by the pro-innovation approach? Would that work? I wouldn't be surprised if you see this morph into an actual act of parliament here to put an actual regulatory obligation. Just the direction of travel, it started from very much, this is not going to be an act of parliament, it's not going to be regulation, it's guidance. And we're moving across that scale now. Now, the timeline on that, I'm not sure. We'll announce in the next sort of round of review. Possibly not. It depends. There's a big summit coming up. I don't know if you've seen it, but Rishi is organizing a big summit on AI regulation to be held in the UK in the autumn. The one he invited Biden to, yeah. He invited Biden to it, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So we'll see what comes out of the back of that summit. I probably wouldn't be surprised if this does move to a statutory footing within the next, don't hold me to this, but maybe within the next 18 months. Which is a phenomenally short timeline for creating something like that, unless you're going to use the EU AI Act as your inspiration, surely. Oh, I don't even mean that as in for a full legislative proposal. I mean that from the mood, like the general talk around that shifting, as in I mean like, hey, in 18 months time, we could be sitting here talking about the UK Act of Parliament, the UK AI Mm. regulation. Now, this is speculation on my part, and I'm probably not that good at speculation, but (laughs) let's see. Oh, thanks. Was there anything about your visit number 10 that was particularly memorable, whether it was in the conversation or the topics or just the environment like oh hey monogrammed coasters or 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 something yeah so well so the conversation was like awesome to be honest i probably had a little bit of imposter syndrome if i'm truly honest sitting in there because there were so many bright minds of ai around the table and the conversation was really like engaging and intelligent to be honest people i thought people made some really really strong and impressive points in a really succinct way that the government definitely got home to the government so that was really interesting. It was really cool meeting like a lot of the government officials behind the scenes and seeing how it works. But probably the most interesting thing about the trip was if you look at that door, right? Like I always thought in my head that once you go through that door, there's this maybe like little small like cloakroom, maybe where you leave your shoes or something whenever you go in. That's what I was expecting when I went in there, but it's actually not. It's a massive hall. You step into this big hall. It's a big expansive grand hall and it's, it's really quite fancy and nice. It was much bigger, basically, than I was expecting. And one of the interesting things about it is when you go in, you leave all of your stuff at the front door. See, it's all been security scanned and things like that, but you can't bring your mobile phones with you or or anything like that. It's all left front door as you go into the rooms that you're kind of got your meetings in. Mm, No selfies, huh? Oh, uh, there was a few selfies on the day. Now there certainly there, but that was at the front door before ah, you right. actually did the into the holes. So it's like the TARDIS. It's bigger on the inside. A lot, a lot bigger on the inside, yeah. Wow. Well, just to approach some final questions here, with all of the disruption that has been posed in the last six months here, we wouldn't be talking and the UK government wouldn't be talking if it weren't for ChatGPT and, and what that precipitated. It wouldn't be with this level of urgency. What is that acceleration doing to how you operate and your personal and professional direction? Yeah, look, I think... 
ChatGPT, I think you're right, first of all. I think, yeah, really captured the imagination of the people of how powerful this technology is. The technology behind ChatGPT, to be honest, have been around for a very long time. Like right. that paper on the proposed transformers was like 2017. Yes. It's been around for a long time. I think just the ease of use and the ease of accessibility of that is what really got people talking about it. And it also, it was a very good like highlight for the risks that these technologies can pose, to be honest. So mm. where I was talking for a very long time at the start of this company about, hey, these technologies are amazingly dangerous. Sometimes it was difficult for people to see that in a tangible way in their day-to-day life. But I think once those language models came online and people started using them and people started seeing the, the YouTube videos of like auto GPT and the things that it can do, I think that really woke people up to, hey, this is actually like, a really, really important, powerful technology and it comes with a lot of dangers and we mm. should be very mindful of managing these dangers and making sure that we're doing the right thing and building technologies in the right way. So there was a like practical, what it's me in my life, I, I suppose whenever I, whenever I speak to people with the space now, it is, I spend less time explaining straight up what it is or what's going on because they kind of get it and lots of people are thinking about the risks. I say, I mean, for us as a startup in this space, it's not very often that you can be a startup where literally all of the world leaders around the world are talking about the problem that your startup is set out to solve. They're talking about the dangers of it. It's a conversation happening at the world leader level. It's happening at basically every board level of every public company. They're worried about, hey, this technology is amazing, but but we better keep a control of this. Like We better make sure that this is being used in the right way and that we're doing the right things. So... From our perspective, I suppose it's been very helpful in terms of accelerating our growth journey. Mm. And it's got us a lot more sort of interest from customers and helped shape our roadmap and that kind of thing. But I think there's still so much more to be done. We're definitely just at the beginning of this, like right at the inception. I think this area and the whole sort of risk management space around this, there's still quite a few things to be figured out. And I look forward to kind of being a part of the conversation for the coming years. I think you're right. The technology had been evolving for some time. What ChatGPT did was bring it into the forefront of everyone's vision. And so now they're talking about it's on the cover of Time magazine, it's on everyone's lips. It is also true, though, that when that 2017 paper came out, attention is all you need, no one thought that they would be able to do what they're doing now. And up to GPT-3, which was able to continue a prompt and keep going, that was reasonable, it was impressive. But the idea that it could then answer general purpose questions or instructions was just not on the radar until it was demonstrated, and in, in, I think first in February 2022, and just at every stage there have been these extraordinary results that were not generally telegraphed in advance. But I think, as you're saying, the main thing that's happened is that this has suddenly gone viral and precipitated this avalanche of discussion that we had been wanting to have for a long time anyway. And now we don't have to do the introductions. We don't have to establish that we're not cranks or fringe in talking about this, that people get it. Yeah, there's something that needs to be done here. That the sort of environment that you're finding? Yeah, it's it's spot on. You know, I think there was a massive capability overhang right at the start. I think even today, there's probably still a capability overhang where we still don't fully know what these technologies are capable of. I still think that's there, but I suppose, I mean, I try and contextualize this a little bit. Like I try and step out of the bubble a little bit and think of like other massive leap forwards in technology and how they've developed and what that's looked like over time. And I mean, I could be massively wrong on this, but like in terms of those large language models, 
maybe the, the really, really big leap forward has already happened. So if you think about the mobile phone, like the smartphone kind of leap forward, iPhone was like a massive, massive leap forward. And there's been continuous incremental gains ever since, ever since, ever since. But like the difference between the 13 and the 14 iPhone is very different from the no iPhone to iPhone 1. Right. iPhone 1 to 4 was way bigger than from 10 to 14 sort of thing. Mm. I wonder, I wonder, are we going to head on a journey like that a little bit where, you know, there's a lot of talk of like AI summers and AI winters and we're definitely in the summer at the moment. Is there a slight bit of a winter coming where we can catch our breath a little bit? I suspect there is, but uh, this is the point where, you know, someone proves me wrong. <laughs> right. <laughs> We've been having those discussions about AI winters on this podcast for three years and every time it looks like it should be about to happen, AI pulls another rabbit out of the hat and, and stays yeah. ahead of it. So I'm just really not going to bet on that at this stage. Ryan, it's been wonderful having you on the show. Thank you for your time. Where should people go to find out more about what you and your company do? Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much for having me. Um, our website is www.enz.ai and you can catch me at ryan at enz.ai or you can add me on LinkedIn or, or find me there. All right. Thanks very much for coming on AI and You. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's the end of the interview. Really interesting how the AI governance space is maturing so fast and now integrating AGI into the conversation. In today's news, ripped from the headlines about AI, OpenAI CEO Sam Altman reportedly told some developers in May that OpenAI wants to turn ChatGPT into a, quote, super smart personal assistant for work. The report on theinformation.com said, quote, with built-in knowledge about an individual and their workplace, such an assistant could carry out tasks such as drafting emails or documents in that person's style and with up-to-date information about their business. The assistant features could put OpenAI on a collision course with Microsoft, its primary business partner, investor and cloud provider, as well as with other OpenAI software customers such as Salesforce, end quote. If true, that's a huge entry into a space already inhabited by some very muscular players, working to bring us those agents that don't just talk, but act. And just to toot our own horn a little bit, we have had guests predicting the creation of digital assistants slash clones of yourself for over three years, starting with our first guest, Audrey Tang, the Digital Information Minister for Taiwan. Next week, my guest will be calling from Australia. Alan D. Thompson is a former chairman within Mensa International, an international keynote speaker about AI, and incredibly prolific creator of writing and visualizations that communicate what's going on with today's AI in highly useful terms. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Artificial Intelligence and You and see more videos and articles at AIandYou.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.